welcome to What Is This Music, a podcast about the psychology and sociology of musical taste. My name is Malcolm Fraser. Some of you might know me through my musical alter ego, The World Provider. Others might know me more as a writer. I've uh, been fascinated for a long time by how different people's musical taste can be and how that intersects with our personalities. I feel like music doesn't just mean different things to different people. I feel like music actually is something different to different people. And I want to explore that in this project. There is a, a body of academic work uh, on, on the topic, and I will get into that at a later time. But I first wanted to just have some conversations with music fans, music listeners, and musicians about musical taste and what it might mean. My first guest on this very first episode is pianist Chili Gonzalez. I think he probably needs no introduction to most people listening. Uh, he's a pretty well-known musician. Uh, he's also uh, now an author of the book Enya, A Treatise on Unguilty Pleasures. Uh, and he's also uh, an old friend of mine. When we were speaking earlier this year, uh, we sort of realized that he was uh, coming up with this book at the same time as I was developing this project. And so I thought it would be fun uh, to start things off by touching base. It's a spirited conversation. Um, I kind of push back on some of the things he says in the book, and he uh, he rises to their defense. So I thought it was a really interesting talk. Just a heads up that there is a bit of scratchiness in the audio on occasion on Gonzo's end of the conversation. I really did my best to take as much out as I could, uh, but he and I mutually decided that it was better to keep the spontaneity uh, of the original conversation rather than do it over again. So bear with me. Uh, this is, of course, the first episode, and uh, you have my word that uh, audio issues will be duly resolved in future episodes. So uh, without any further ado, here it is. Hope you enjoy it. My guest on the show today, Chili Gonzalez, piano player, musical entertainer, and now author uh, of the book Enya, A Treatise on Unguilty Pleasures. Um, so uh, how could I even like introduce... Um, our history, Gonzo, we, we met in the mid-90s through our mutual friend Maki. Uh, we were roommates uh, for a short time. And, uh, and then ever since then, we've been friends and worked on each other's projects here and there. You know, I, we always had pretty different musical tastes, I would say. I think it's fair to say. But we sort of uh, we found, a, found an overlap somewhere, maybe rubbed off on each other a little bit. Um, but I remember uh, from from the old days that I, it was notable to me that you you always took musical taste very personally. Uh, like you were, it would always you would always be really annoyed if someone liked something that you didn't, or vice versa. Uh, and I thought that was funny, but also I I always loved your uh, how passionate you were about it. Um, and now you have a whole book about uh, about musical taste. Well, yeah, and I would say that, you know, writing the book made me realize I've come a long way because I've now come to a much different opinion about taste. 
and have sort of embraced its multitudes that literally like snowflakes, everybody's taste should be this perfectly original, unrepeated combination of factors that makes them like certain things. And it should be subject to evolution, but only an evolution, I think, based on an internal journey. I don't think it's right to try to convince someone to like something that they don't like. I don't think intellectual arguments can successfully change someone's taste. Maybe there's a part of our taste that is susceptible to arguments, but I wouldn't even call that the true taste. It's what I would call the sort of corrupted second taste or the intellectual taste or the social taste or, you know, I haven't found the perfect way to describe it, but the part, the part of taste where you define yourself as part of a social group and vis-a-vis -vis other people. But I would probably hate myself if I would meet myself at the time you're describing where I have these <laughs> absolutist sort of, what, you like that? That's wrong or whatever, you know? Because I, 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 don't, yeah, yeah. I don't believe that anymore, as I say in the book. Well, okay, so there, there's a lot to, 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 to unpack there and I want a lot of stuff I wanted to talk about. Um, so, I mean, you, you talked about, you, you said you, you might hate yourself at that, um, at that part of your, uh, of your life. And I found that in this book, you're quite hard on, on the younger versions of yourself. Um, you talk early in the book about um, being into jazz fusion um, as, a, as a young man, and then sort of coming to a, a realization that, um, well, you say in the book, the quote is, why had I spent so much time venerating these fast-fingered con artists? Looking back, I see them for the fakers and charlatans they were. Then later in the book, you talk about, you say, the pleasure I'd felt so freely listening to jazz wankers was suddenly burdened by shame and guilt. So I see, like, there's a bit of a paradox there, because on, on one hand, you're calling, uh, you're calling these musicians con artists and, and, and charlatans, which is a, a pretty harsh way to, a, par a very harsh accusation to level uh, at another artist. But then later you say, that you, you, you talk about that as a source of sort of pure pleasure. Well, so um, you're, you're going to make me hate myself now, is what you're saying. <laughs> no, no, not, not, uh, not at all. I'm just I, I would say that, you know, I'm describing stops on the way. My only true taste is probably the one I talk about having to do with, like, being pre-conscious, being a baby, and not getting sung enough lullabies. That probably leads me more than any other event in my life to the music I actually like and make. So I think, you know, what I listen to today is probably more now, finally, of a direct, as the French would say, assumé product of those pre-conscious childhood things. Everything else is a stop along the way, including the, the jazz wankers. That was more of a have to do with me misunderstanding what I think the purpose of music is for. I believe that music is about connection rather than impressing people. Jazz fusion tends to be music that doesn't necessarily create a connection with the world at large. It tends to be music for other musicians or people who are um, impressed by music. And, um, and that's why it is essentially a niche genre compared to pop music, let's say. Yeah. But I mean, on that topic, you know, I was speaking to someone uh, yesterday uh, who's a musician and he said like, well, why is he picking on jazz fusion? Like everybody hates that genre and nobody listens to it anyway. I'm not so picking was... on it. I'm not picking on it. I'm telling my story. I fell into uh -huh. it. I fell into a trap. 
that many musicians fall into, which is to think that you should show what you can do on your instrument as a substitute for creating connection. You know, I'm, I'm, when I say those jazz wankers, those charlatans, uh, it's a book, you know, I'm trying to be extreme also because I'm trying to make a point, but I don't necessarily think that anyone who likes jazz fusion is as misguided as I was. You can like that if that's your, your, um, your, your true taste. I just know in my case, I got hoodwinked. Right. So you talk about um, later on your in indie rock phase and like a desire to be cool and uh, maybe like I'm projecting my own, uh, you know, insecurities or uh, emotional baggage but I, I felt like that hit close to home for me, you know, maybe because I, I like some of the artists that you uphold as people who you sort of pretended to like to be cool. But um, you bring it back to Enya. I mean, I'm, I'm not that familiar with Enya's music, but I do have this recollection of listening to her with, with a girlfriend uh, at the time and sort of feeling that the music was really relaxing, but also having this nagging feeling that it was like not cool uh even though it was just me and my girlfriend when we're both 19 like hanging around in the in the dorm room you know, i i wonder why why is it important to be cool at, at that age yeah probably because you want to belong and because you're experimenting with the limits of parental authority and you're just the moment you're separating from your parents and so like i guess you get attracted to things that are cool because essentially it seemed you can project onto them that your parents wouldn't like them. As you always tell any classical musician who doesn't like modern classical music, you have to remind them that people thought Beethoven was dissonant and it's all relative and every time period has its next level of rebellion and every generation has the feeling of, no, now they've gone too far. And I've even had that with, with being a rap fan and feeling like some of rap music as it's being made by really young people now, has somehow jumped some shark and that now I can't quite listen to it anymore uh, because its aesthetic values have just finally broken through something that I thought was sacred. And that's why I'm really happy that Buster Rhymes just put out his sequel to Extinction Level Event because I'm almost 50 and I've become a little bit of a get-off-my-lawn type person when it comes to my my music you know i i'm slowly getting to the point where i i do feel maybe it was better before even though i was I, dreading that my my whole life in a way i'm finally finally starting to actually feel that i know what you mean and i feel the same way uh about about hip-hop um we, we, you talked about like an aesthetic you know barrier breaking through some aesthetic barrier that seemed sacred uh is there is there something you can pinpoint in that? Because I've felt I've noticed that in myself too. Like the last time I was in New York listening to Hot ninety seven, I found myself thinking that that statement that seems so ignorant was like this all just sounds the same to me. Well, it's because there's kids who who by their very definition have to find a sound that will go further, and in some ways negate the sound that came previously because their parents are our age or younger, and are listening to Busta Rhymes and their classic hip-hop that they loved. But this is another reason why, how can you really trust your own taste when it's so tied up in your self-definition against your parents, against a certain older or younger sibling, because a girl that you liked liked something? 
you almost liked Enya, didn't you, that night? You almost did. You found it relaxing, you know, because probably you liked that girl, and so you were more open to it than if you had heard it in a, just a straight vacuum. I keep on coming back to this term that I didn't use in the book, but in interviews lately. How can you get a clear shot at something to know if you like it or not? Mm. This is my point. It's very hard these days to get a clear shot. Social media just makes it worse, but it already was a problem because sometimes you have too much information about something before you even have a chance to decide what you think about it because there's a consensus that invisibly forms. And so how do you get a clear shot at knowing what you like? Well, you have to get in touch with your inner child, essentially. Yeah, so true. Um, so like talking about, uh, um, we were talking about the kids these days and um, uh, and so much of your book is about the concept of the guilty pleasure. And it, it reminded me of this great um, quote that I read one time in an interview with Harmony Corrine, where someone said, what are your guilty pleasures? And he said, none of my pleasures are guilty. And I thought it was such a wonderfully pretentious statement to make. Yeah, it's beautiful though. Beautiful. He obviously has, at least he ended up at a place. I don't know what his teenage years or his 20s were like because it took me so long to get to the point where I would say the same. I guess one of the reasons we would put something into a category of guilty pleasure is because we have a image of the artist that we think is the ultimate artist is someone who doesn't calculate, who doesn't compromise, who will, without, you know, without any thought of the audience, just follow their artistic integrity to its logical end. And the music that tends to be put into the guilty pleasure category is stuff that seems desperate to want to be liked, stuff that openly wants to have a big audience seems to automatically be shuffled into a different category where if we like it, we feel like we're, we're giving in to that genetically created pop juggernaut that is designed and desperate to be liked. Whereas yeah. what we project onto more, uh, whatever, you know, artists that we think are more uncompromising, we tend to give them this pass because we think they're not trying so hard to be liked and therefore it's easier for us to say we like it. Yeah. I wonder to what extent that's a generational thing because um, my younger friends, I find, they, they don't really have the same hang-ups about liking unabashedly commercial music, whether it's from this era or or previous eras. Is that something that you've noticed or thought about? Well, I've noticed it with my nine-year-old daughter, most of all, because she's still in the, the pre-conscious phase of taste. So, of course, I see with her how immediate the reaction is to food, to people, to music, to anything, actually. It's so instant, and she's so convinced. And that was a sort of big inspiration in a way to start thinking about it differently. But if you're talking about people who are now in their 20s, whatever, then, yeah, probably. I mean... I, I have my project, The Conservatory, where I invite musicians who are generally in their 20s and they come and spend you know, 10 days with me and I get really into what they're listening to. And I, I would say also that um, there seemed to be a, a much healthier mix of music that we would have considered um, designed to be liked or that is at least purporting to be not designed to be liked. I mean... I think anyone who makes music probably wants it to be liked. And I always thought 
I should wear the calculation and the desperation on my sleeve and that I will not hide the fact that I want to have as big an audience as possible for the music that I happen to be making. But that's always in a second, in a second stage of creation. The first stage of creation should be this sacred, blind, fishing, going fishing in yourself surprise. You shouldn't be calculating when you're like making the song and it's Genesis. But there is a moment where the song starts to take form. And there is a moment you have to figure out when that moment is as a creator. When is the moment to switch from that blind subjectivity to a more calculated objectivity, which can be a really enriching experience as an artist to go full throttle into that part. That's song title, that's visual representation, that's final touches on the production. That is, there's so much wonderful artistic opportunities that also happen in that second phase, which is brainier and more calculated and requires a kind of putting yourself into the body or ears of your potential audience. And yet, at least for our generation, there was a weird taboo on that. And you're probably right that that has fallen away. And that's probably a really positive thing. Yeah, I, I, I think it probably is. But I wonder, like, is it possible that it's just a baby boomer and Gen X phenomenon of this, this weirdness about feeling guilty about our pleasures? And I wonder, I wonder why that might be. I don't know. I have this memory of hanging around with some friends who were a little older than me and somehow talking about Michael Jackson. This is before Michael Jackson's personal proclivities were so associated with his music. And they were all sort of slagging off Michael Jackson. And I said, uh, but you got to admit, Thriller is a great album, right? And there was just this strange silence. And I realized that they in no way felt that they had to admit that. You know, they thought it was really, really uncool music because it was so popular. And I kind of had this weird moment of shame. But I mean, if you really examine it, it's it's a very strange uh, inversion to think that something uh, is bad because it's popular. It is strange. It might be a hangover from some 60s things. I mean, we did grow up in the 70s and 80s, you and I, and um, I'm not sure what would have changed since then to make, to make that less of an issue. I, you know what? I will admit, in writing the book, I hadn't really thought about the generational part of it because I was trying to go so deep into myself in the book. Mm -hmm. And, of course, that means I'm inadvertently speaking from a perspective of my generation. Uh, coming around again just to the, the, the other side of, uh, of the musical um, world or another side, um, you, you, uh, you do uh, a few times seem to kind of like uh, push the buttons of, of people for liking uh, or seeming to like um, certain kinds of like uh, dissonant music or something. And at one point you list off a few artists and then you say, bold and challenging rather than pandering to the masses. Heroic, deep, definitely not shallow. So obviously it's a pretty sarcastic take. And I, I wonder, and maybe I'm pushing your buttons a bit by saying this, but like, are you saying that like the music shouldn't be challenging or, or deep? Like, no, I, I want... I don't know. I'm talking about my own experience with liking soothing music. I listen to a lot of dissonant music. I listen to a lot of challenging music. I'm a musician. But I'm just talking about my own taste. I mean, again, it's a book about my own taste. 
And I definitely am not like trying to push anyone's buttons other than to point out that we have associations with music and that cool music, you will agree with me because we talked about it, tends to be music that the parental generation wouldn't like. And so it has to go further and further into the development of music, which has in general been a slide into dissonance, noise and complexity, essentially, um, or at least um, harmonic and rhythmic complexity in many ways. Listening to rap music from today, some songs you really go, okay, would Mozart, if he were alive today, would he even recognize this as music, certain songs, you know? And so I just think, yes, there is, I, I don't think that music shouldn't be challenging. I don't think that music shouldn't be dissonant. I'm just making a point that we tend to associate those kinds of music with being more rebellious, with being more cool, with being more deep, for the precise reason that they are a little less accessible. And we tend to fetishize when we're thinking of cool, we tend to equate cool with inaccessible because accessible is open to everybody. And what's cool but a club you want to be part of? It's more, it tends to be more elite. And, um, you know, if I think of what my parents listened to, yeah, I mean, it was pretty straightforward music that wasn't very challenging. And when I was listening to stuff as a teenager, there was a lot of like, turn off that noise, you know, that kind of mm -hmm. thing. When you said that, it just reminded me of a time in my life when I started getting really into like 50s orchestral pop music. And my dad heard it and was like, this is the kind of music we made fun of our parents for listening to. So it it kind of come full circle somehow. So um, I, I, I just, you know, I mean, I, I don't know if you're trying to gotcha me because like I, I'm not trying to, the whole point of my book is that I'm, I don't ever judge anyone for their taste. I judge myself for my own um, uh, pre prejudices for what music and different styles of music represent. And I know that for me, sometimes I was attracted to music that was more dissonant than I actually would have, preferred uh, in the name of trying to be cool and I kind of intellectually forced myself into liking it and to minimize um, listening to music that seemed accessible because it made me feel like I wasn't part of the cool club. You talk about this um, this desire as, as a young person to to be part of the cool club and uh, and I feel like that that weighs heavily on on some of these these musical taste statements that you make um why is the why do these um taste gatekeepers I mean, why do their opinions matter or seem to matter when you're at that stage of life i guess i was a pretty insecure person i mean i i, I still do battle with insecurity a lot i think it took me a long time to i mean when i met maki a very a common friend of ours who who introduced us as you mentioned i was amazed when i met him and he was barely probably, what was he, 20, 21 maybe when I met him, he had a pretty fully formed taste that was very individual. I was amazed when I would mention certain things that I thought everyone liked and he would have either not heard them. He just had these weird idiosyncrasies and he liked only one weird rock band in this style and it was the Violent Femmes and one weird classical composer and it was Bartok. Whatever it was, he already seemed to have gotten to the enlightened place where he wasn't conforming, where he wasn't victim to a lot of these social pressures to change his taste. 
And I would argue that a lot of his taste today can still be traced back to him as a 21-year-old. Can't really say the same for myself. It took me a long time to really get to a place where I understood my own taste. So there are people who can resist it, but I think someone like me, I was quite insecure. I was very susceptible to those tastemakers. And I think they prey upon insecure people fundamentally. And, and, and as I said, social media makes that all the more possible now. So that you know that you have to like a Frank Ocean album before you've even heard it. And if you don't, then you're sort of almost taking a social risk. Yeah. What, uh, you say they, they, they prey upon people. What do you think that impulse is? Well. <laughs> no, I'm just curious. <laughs> no, they're, they're praying for them. You know, they're praying for their souls. You know, they're praying that their taste will get better. No, I'm, I'm just, uh, <laughs> I'm just curious um, if I mean, because, you know, ultimately you talk about coming to this more empathetic place. And I'm, I'm wondering, like, as a thought experiment, could we extend that empathy to these uh, cool taste gatekeepers and try to figure out where they're coming from? Well, they want to have influence. They're, they're, they want power. They're power-hungry right. <laughs> authoritarians. They are basically musical Donald Trumps. Okay. And they, no, I'm, I'm exaggerating <laughs> for effect. But I do think that if you're not a musician, but you sort of appoint yourself as someone who can, um, who can tell people what music to listen to because you have some sort of expertise it starts to become a real slippery slope to, well, taste by definition is personal. So why would, you know, I mean, there is a sort of long-standing tradition of artists looking down their noses at cultural commentators, critics, whether it's music, film, or literature. It's a pretty storied tradition that I think I'm part of if I say that I don't really respect the role of tastemaker. I think mm. artists are tastemakers. They've earned it because they are literally putting something out as an example. And that example can then steer people's taste because it's something. But if all you're offering is comments on other works of art, then you're essentially the journalistic equivalent of a DJ. Mm. Which is to yeah. say you're selecting rather than creating. Sure, I, don't respect, I don't respect selection as much as creating. And mm -hmm. pardon me. <laughs> uh, well, there's no, uh, you know, apology necessary. Um, <laughs> I, uh, there's a, there's a great part in your book and, and, and again, I mean, this, you know, we talked about how you like to, you like to, to, uh, you like to, to exaggerate for effect and, and, and push, push buttons and say provocative things. But, um, in this book, you also show a lot of vulnerability. And as I said before, you're, you're quite hard on yourself in a way that, that I hadn't seen in your, in your public, you know, persona before. Um, and there's a great moment where you talk about, um, having a musical revelation through a music teacher who, who tells you to listen to a John Coltrane album. And then when you come back and say you didn't like it, tells you to listen to it again. And so it gives you some guideposts for listening. And I wonder, like, you know, maybe I'm being too, uh, too um i don't know empathetic or like reaching a crowd uh, reaching across the aisle or whatever but i wonder if that could be the same phenomenon as when 
the 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 critical apparatus or the critical consensus sort of encourages people to to give something a, a deeper listen or like I, I get I'm not really articulating this well, but you you say at one point in the book, have you ever noticed how the year end best albums list seem to be ninety percent identical? Is it actually possible for all critics to happen to like the same ten records? And I'm I'm positing again, it's not what I deeply believe but as a thought experiment could this be the same phenomenon as when like the 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 teacher gave you guideposts to listen to a record more closely well he's a teacher he's a musician Mm -hmm. it's different it's different different than being a tastemaker different than being a critic sure sure um but yeah you know i will allow the fact that um there are people who are as insecure as I was in my, uh, up to my late twenties where I felt like I needed that external voice. I just think it's a bit of a pity I did. And I feel like people's tastes are just lying dormant within them and they don't listen to them enough. So that's maybe where some of the vitriol comes from because I, I, people can do what they want. If people are, uh, want to read those reviews and feel, I mean, I think my sister's a really good example. She really basically reads every Booker Prize nominee that year. And she'll just like, oh, I'm doing that thing where I buy every Booker Prize nominated novel and I read it. And I think that's great. And I, you know, I have experience with that firsthand because I was also insecure. But I truly believe that if my sister just wandered around a bookstore for a few hours she might do better at finding something that pleases her than the Booker Prize list. If she could be in touch with herself more to understand what motivates her more generally in life, the things she's missing, the kind of people she wants to uh, identify with might help her spend a few hours in a bookstore and be look more internally rather than externally to slake her thirst for culture. And that's sort of, where I've ended up now is I want to look inside myself more and more to find out what I have to say and what I, um, you know, how I buy books now is literally like that. And I find such interesting books because I find stuff that no one's read and, um, it, it feels more valuable to me to have discovered something than to have been told to like something and to have begrudgingly given into its, uh, timely omnipotence. Yeah. At the same time, though, I mean, you talked before about like sort of, um, and this has happened to me many times and, and continues to happen to me. Uh, if I if I um, see that a certain artist is really cool or really hip or is on all the critics lists or playing all the festivals, my mind kind of goes like, oh, well, you know, whatever, like herd mentality. Like me, like I, me with Lana Del Rey. Yeah, exactly. Who I actually then, ended up loving. And then sometimes, like, yeah, a, f- a couple, some months or years down the road, I'll hear this, the, the record, and be like, well, this is great. And people are like, yeah, everyone knew, everyone's known that for two years. Um, so I wonder... But isn't, if, isn't that know, a better moment for you when you accidentally discover it's great? Isn't it good that you decided to take a pass and wait until you could have a clear shot? Maybe. Maybe I mean, it means uh, more to you in that moment than it did for the person who just hive-minded, you know? Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't really, like, I'm, I'm struggling th- 
to my, my grand theory of the uh, sociology and psychology of musical taste, but that's what, you know, that's why this is only the first episode of this. Uh... This is only the first episode? <laughs> Wait, I didn't know I was going to be a guinea pig. <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry, man. I, um, it's true. I'm using you as a test test subject. Uh, honestly, I uh, I really like the book. My only criticism is that uh, it, it, I wanted more. It's a very short book, but I guess leave him wanting more is a good entertainment philosophy. Yeah, and it was it was um, it's part of a series in in Germany. It originated from a German publisher, and they generally have a limit on the 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 number of pages for these books. They generally like to keep it you know close to a hundred. I think mine's ninety mm-hmm. or something, or maybe a bit longer in German. I can't remember. But um, it's all those bi- it's all those long German words. It's true. When you translate a book, it, it literally adds, they say twenty percent from English to German. I would say, you know, the way I got the way that I was able to write the book is by keeping it conversational. I didn't look to find a literary voice. Uh, I read a lot of literature, especially lately, and I have so much respect for it. And I just thought the best I can hope for is to capture the tone of how I speak on stage in interviews, almost how I, you know, how I communicate in my rap songs even was part of it. And maybe most of all, my master classes, which involves a kind of parallel worlds of academic English and sort of, you know, South Park level juvenilia, which I think is something you can relate to. I've been inspired by your writings over the years. I don't know if listeners to this podcast, especially as this is the first episode, would know, but Malcolm had a, uh, a kind of film journal called Moving Picture Views. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And it was great because it just had this amazing tone. It felt so academic, but then there would just be these little asides where you would just sort of realize that you were in the presence of someone who wore Hawaiian shirts and loves Weird Al. And that was, <laughs> that was very much you. And I know that we've always, you know, in our, in our group of friends... We always had very spirited discussions where I think we always, on all sides, tend to always be a bit more extreme for effect, getting caught up in the moment, the rhetorical moment, so to speak. Uh-huh. And um, that has become part of my style. I, I sort of internalize that and the way I've always spoken in interviews. I remember my brother taking me to task for saying something like, I, I, I said the vibraphone was like, the worst musical instrument of all time. Why anyone would play this piece of crap, I'll never understand. Like, I said something like that in an interview when I was in my band's son back in Canada. And he was making fun of me because he said, you always speak so extremely. And it's true, when people sometimes parrot my words back to me, I almost feel like, oh my God, why, why couldn't I have modulated that a little bit, you know? But it just seems to be the way I talk and therefore the book has that in it. Um, but... I hope that balances out by the fact that I'm equally hard on myself. That was always what I told myself. No matter how much I might say, um, you know, jazz fusion is musical masturbation. And what it really means is that how weak and insecure I was that I could fall for that when I didn't actually like it. I'm not saying that someone else couldn't like it sincerely, but in my case, it was uh, a digression from my true path. And I happen to believe the gods of music don't want us to impress people. I happen to believe the gods of music want us to connect with people. And that's, you know, everything in the book, I hope, carries with it a giant, in my opinion, disclaimer. Uh, And I try to be as harsh with myself as I might be with any other musicians or any other 
people I portray in the book, like the girl who thinks that Fournelon Blonde's What's Going On, that it would have been easy to write that song because it's so simple. And of course, my immediate answer would sort of be, well, how come you've never written a, a giant banger international monolith of a hit like that if it's so easy? So I, I do have sympathy and you know a Jesus-like love for all those people that I portray in the book because I was such a lost soul too back then. And I'm still struggling in many ways. There's still moments where I'm on stage and I realize I slipped back into it and I did something on stage that was meant to impress rather than to connect. So I fall short of the gods of music quite often these days as well. So I love anyone who has transgressed against them. Nice. Um, well, that's, a, I think, a, a good note to end on. So um, thank you for, uh, for this time. I, 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 the... I guess I'm at once the best and worst guest that's ever been on this podcast. <laughs> yes, definitely. What's it called? And, uh, What's this podcast called? It's called What Is This Music? Ooh. It's like, you know, what you say when you walk into a room and there's music playing that you either really like or really don't like. Or it's what I say, I guess. Is there a question mark in the podcast title? There's a question mark and an exclamation mark. Oh, wow. Okay. A lot of punctuation. Yes. I, I, yeah, I like punctuation. I know it's a bit goofy to have the, the double like that, but I'm, I'm just owning it. As you say, I'm a guy who wears Hawaiian shirts. Not, <laughs> not, not to do with uh, the Boogaloo movement. Um, but um, yeah, anyway. Um, um, well, congratulations on, uh, on the first episode. Oh, well, thanks. Uh, well, I love the book and, uh, you know, I look forward to having many other, uh, you know, off mic conversations in the future. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. This has been the first episode of What Is This Music? You can find uh, Chili Gonzalez's book, Enya, a treatise on unguilty pleasures. It's published by uh, Invisible Publishing in the U.S. and Canada. Full disclosure, they also published my book, Wooden Star's Innocent Gears back in 2013. Check them both out. Uh, it's also published in the UK by Rough Trade Publishing, and it is also available in German and French editions, if that's your bag. You can find the What Is This Music podcast page on Facebook. You can find me, Malcolm Fraser, uh, on all the uh, appropriate social media. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed it, and uh, we'll see you next time.